Okay. So we are currently on a series um, about being responsible for the bride. And what I felt like the Lord wanted to title the sermon, I don't usually get the sermon titles, as all of the media team knows. Um, but this time, I felt like the Lord kind of gave me the title before I actually got the rest of the talk. And it was, Loving Our Bridegroom, He's Better Than All the Rest. So, um, when we talk about being responsible for the bride, for those of you who do not know, we're talking about the body of Christ, the people who know Jesus. What we are doing in a lot of ways is we are, one, part of the bride. We are part of the people that Jesus is coming back and going to marry. But we are also a part of the recruitment team. <laughs> um, to be able to reflect who Jesus is to those who do not yet know, and to make him seem compelling to other people. It is not our responsibility to convince people, but it is our, con- it is our responsibility to rightfully um, reflect and represent him, and in the places where we know he has been misrepresented, to be able to help identify those areas for other people. All right. Um, so when I was thinking about what I should say about this, um, Ryan actually gave me a little uh, direction. And he was just like, I want you to think about why you love the Lord. And I think that sounds so simple, but it's actually really difficult. Because if we're talking about a bridegroom and what we're doing um, to the end of the age, we're talking about us in a prolonged, in a period of engagement. We are all, those of us who call ourselves Christians, and those of you who are not yet, hopefully this makes you interested. Um, We are all now in a period, what we're called, waiting for him to come back. And when you think about um, marriage, one of the things that makes marriage or the wedding most exciting is how much you are in love with the person you're going to marry. Um, I do a lot of pre-engagement counseling and um, marital co- premarital counseling. And there, and almost always, what I'm looking for is that these two people, I mean, I'm looking for a lot of different things, but one of the things I'm looking for is that these two people are really excited to be together, right? That is one component, right? If the people show a lot of ambivalence, that is usually indicative that there's something else that we need to discuss and talk about. And so, um, so I feel like there's different types of sermons that we give. Some of them are very primarily teaching sermons, right? Like where we're giving a lot of information, we want you to learn a lot of things to make sure your theology is straight. We always try to make sure that our theology is straight when we're up here. But then there's also some sermons that are prophetic in nature. And what those sermons are is they're meant to release the word of God to become active in your life. They have a place where they can become relevant if you grab hold of them. There is a a scripture in the word that says that the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. And so as we testify, when we share what he has done in our life, it can oftentimes activate something that God wants to do in your life. And so sometimes when we hear things like testimony, um, what the purpose of those things is to do is to cause our spirit to rise up 
and to say, whoa, is that who God is to that person? Can God be that to me? And then that activates a grace to release that component of God's character for you. And so when I think about us falling in love with Jesus, um, like to be honest with you, I think, uh, and I don't say this flippantly, but I really truly cannot imagine a person in the entire universe more worthy of our affection, um, When I grew up, for um, for a lot of you guys who may not know, my family, we are uh, immigrants and refugees from uh, the Vietnam War. My family's from Vietnam. And they grew up in incredible poverty. Like, I, not that I'm downplaying the poverty that we see in the U.S., because that's real, right? But these, this is like a country that had been going undergoing war for hundreds of years, multiple colonizations, and at a place where they were in a civil war themselves. Um, my family lived in things that we would con- probably now consider shacks. Um, you know, cardboard, not a whole lot of, uh, there's no running plumbing and things like that. Um, and those people... Um, my family did everything that they wanted to, did everything in their power to be able to come here to the U.S. And none of them knew the Lord. And when I first, when we first um, were in our refugee camp, that's where I was born, um, we were sponsored over by this couple. And this couple... Uh, I, I was, I found out later on in life, they were both doctors and Christians and a pediatrician. I was born really, really, really sick and, um, underweight and allergic to my mother's milk. And so, um, when we came over those, that couple became an incredible source of light and life for us. Um, literally giving me life back because I was now able to find formula that I could eat. And they sowed seeds of a gospel that from where we were from, nobody was able to tell us. And later on when I found out that even from the moment that I set foot on this land that God himself knew, um, my mother and I, it made me weep. It really touched me. And I think to tie this to your lives, I would love all of you to think back all the way to the very beginning of your life. Where has God's hand been? Because I didn't know that. Because actually it was not, it was 18 years later that I actually started to follow the Lord. Um, My family has an interesting history where none of the women actually marry. Um, my aunt had 12 children, all of, and I think 10 of them are women, and none of them married, but the two boys did, and my grandmother was actually a child bride. She got married at 14, did not want to be married, 
um, was hated being a mother, hated having children, was incredibly abusive to my mother. And so the story of abuse continues in that way. And so my mother, uh, long story short, I was raised only by my mother. My father abandoned us when I was born. Um, basically, didn't know. she didn't have a whole lot of education. She didn't know much, and she didn't know the Lord. And so her way of loving was berating, nagging, and fearful. It was a really, really difficult environment to grow up in. And then you fast forward to when I was 18, uh, not 18, when I was in high school. Um, at that point, I realized there was not a single competent adult in my life. I did not have a father. I did not have a mother that I respected. Most people, when they are growing up, they have somebody who's a capable adult where you can look up and say, authority figures are nice. Authority figures are safe. Authority figures know what they're doing, and they will protect me. That was not my perspective. My perspective was they are inept, incompetent, and mostly I just need to protect myself from them. It was not until I was 14 years old that I met one capable, competent adult. And I remember sitting in an English class, and this man, um, not a class, not, I wasn't in the class, I was actually, I met him, and he ended up being my English teacher. And he ended up being my best friend all throughout high school. And it turns out that he knew the Lord, and he was one of the few people, even to this day, that I felt like showed me kindness, goodness, truth. And because he was a teacher in California, he couldn't proselytize or tell me too much. But I knew that he was a youth group leader. And very recently, I was actually praying. And and I felt, and I was uh, kind of reflecting. And I was talking to the Lord about this teacher. And you know, kind of, and asking God, where were you in all of that? And I felt like the Lord had said, I put in you a desire for goodness and purity and for me. And so when I brought that teacher, Mr. Shin, into your life, my Holy Spirit was drawing you to me. And so that small light, because you were hungry and longing for it, you went and it showed you the way to me. It was one person. It wasn't a ton of people. It was one person who truly did not judge, but also did not accept my ridiculous thoughts. Um, and then when I was 18, when he could, he brought me to a, um, a Christian event, a Billy Graham crusade. I don't know if you guys know, but Billy Graham was an incredible evangelist. Um, and I was very, very cynical. 
And I thought, this person is probably a charlatan who wants to take people's money. I don't understand, blah, 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 blah. Right? But I'm going to go because I like Mr. Shin. So I went. And at that moment, I encountered the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, I didn't understand what the Holy Spirit was. No one had explicitly told me that when you encounter the Holy Spirit, he can actually, like, take over your whole body. He can actually be someone who makes you feel everything. Like, I remember I was in the stadium I didn't really fully understand the gospel. But what I understood was that when that person up there said, come, that what I was feeling in my body was saying, there's no other, where, no other place you should go. I remember my head was pounding. My limbs were heavy. All I wanted to do was cry. And so I ran to towards the altar and I prayed whatever it was that they pray, they told you to pray. And I said, Jesus, I repent of my sin. I want you to be my king. Da 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 da, right? And for those of you guys who are unsure of the point of salvation, I don't actually know at what point I got saved either. I think that's a really complicated question that involves the moment that Jesus becomes your Lord. Right? Was that the moment that Jesus became my Lord? I don't know. It's not that important because that was the, still the first touch point that opened the door for me to continue to seek him. And so for the next year, what I did, I remember, because back then, I was still like a pretty big head person. And so I just read every book that I possibly could about Christianity, about Jesus, about whether or not he was true, about what was the, what were the legitimate and illegitimate reasons to follow him and all of that kind of stuff. And at the end of that year, I felt 100% that there was nobody and nothing else that was more right than Jesus. That he had in fact come to this earth as a real human, there was historical backing for that. And that everything that the Christian faith lands and is founded on, which is the fact that he lived and that he actually resurrected, that there was empirical evidence enough to back up the fact that that man rose again. And because of that, I felt very, very comfortable saying that I was going to become a Christian. And so after that... I really feel like my life with him began. And so I think I say all this because when I think about my life and where God had been, I have realized that he had been chasing me, pursuing me, even though People who come from the statistics that I come from with single mothers from non-educated backgrounds who have, who live in poverty, that kind of thing, those kinds of people statistically don't end up doing very well. They end up pregnant, they end up uh, falling out of, uh, not graduating, and that was the truth of the matter for a large majority of my high school class. 
But for some reason, when I look back, I can see the moments where God had showed up. And I think a lot of times what we like to do, especially, I'm not, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but if you had great parents, if you had parents who actually asked you how you're doing, or if you look and read or watch TV of a world where parents do those kinds of things, you can think something was wrong and lacking in your life. Why is our thing so hard? Why am I missing things? Or you can be mad at your parents. My parents didn't do this. They didn't ask how I was doing. They don't believe in me. The job didn't turn out the way that I thought. And I feel like the way that I saw, I see it is, dude, we all have nothing. And we all can find and see markers of God's pursuit and favor in our life. And it's the enemy who tries to highlight the things that, the, and that he's doing, the chaos that he's made in this world, and not allow you to see the presence of God in your life. And then we get hung up. But my mom did this. My dad did this. My teachers did this. And I'm not saying that those things aren't, val- aren't valid. Those are. But that is the work of the devil. Right? And what he wants us to do is he wants us to meditate upon all those points. Look at what I did. Oh, isn't that horrible? Look, that's why you should be mad at God. That's why he's not real. That's what he wasn't doing in your life. And God's like, man, I know you were in a dark place. And I was that single light. I was that one person who told you the truth when no one else told you the truth. I was that one person who prayed for you when no one else dared step out of their comfort zone. I was the one person who X, Y, Z, you fill in the blank because you know your life. And all of those moments... have laid a foundation for the love that I believe and I have for Jesus now. The word of God says in Mark 2, they ask about Jesus. It says, when the scribes who were Pharisees saw Jesus eating with these people, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus told them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to the righteous, but sinners. Our love for God really depends on how much we relate to the idea that we were sick and needed God. If we're offended by the fact that someone tells us that we need God, then he's not good news to us. But for me, and where I was, you didn't have to convince me that the world was sick. You didn't have to convince me that there was evil and wickedness rampant in the lives of my family and curses and things rampant all over. When someone said that there is good, there is someone pure, there is someone who actually knows what goodness is, someone who actually loves you, who does not want to harm you, that meant something to me because everyone else in my life 
did not reflect that. For some of you guys, it's harder to believe that because you have had good. And maybe it's not, but I know for me, because I didn't see it reflected in anything that even remotely resembled goodness, when I encountered Jesus, who said, I am the way, the life, and the truth. I am hope. I am hope for the nations. I'm like, I need hope. And I think the gospel is going to be most profound for those who are like, man, I need that hope. And that hope has completely transformed and changed in my single generation my life and the life of my children. I want to share a few things that I've realized as I've walked with Jesus. The longer I walk with him, the more I realize he's nothing like any of the people here on earth. I love my mom, actually, a lot. Okay, she is, I wouldn't be here without her. I don't blame her one iota that she didn't know. No one taught her. Her mom didn't want her. Her mom was sold and and, and given over as a kid to be married when she still felt too young. So she had the burden of knowing she was unwanted her whole life. She only had two years of schooling. How would she know how to love me better and how to tell me nice things? This whole, like, I love you thing never happened. I don't think my mom ever told me she loved me until I was, like, in my mid-30s. And even then, it was weird. (laughs) I'm like, "Eh, actually, I think I'm uncomfortable with you saying that, but thank you. (laughs) But she tried. (laughs) It was really sweet. But I don't fault her, actually, at all. Right? But she was very controlling. She, because she didn't know God... She felt like she had to tell me how to live every single thing. This is the profession you need to do, you need to become. This is what you need to do. She didn't have trust in God at the time. And one of the things that I realized following God, he is not controlling at all. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And if he was controlling... He wouldn't have put that tree there. But he put the tree in the Garden of Eden knowing that we would have to choose. And this is really, I think, a pretty important revelation for me because I think a lot of times when we're talking about being connected to the bride, when we're talking about our role in the church, A lot of times we're going to watch people make a lot of poor choices. We ourselves make a lot of poor choices. But what's really interesting is that 
God never controlled people or us. He waits until our heart makes a choice out of love for him. For us, when we see someone sin, I mean, granted, we need to tell them that we see that because we love them, right? I'm not saying just go and let them do it. But there's this real terror that people feel. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? What should I do? Should, you know, like, should I set up all these things? And let's just say, let's, a, a great example is, like, your friends are dating. They don't have great boundaries. But you're a friend watching them have bad boundaries. You can talk to them and have a conversation with them about their about appropriate boundaries that they should have in dating, right? Because that keeps you out of trouble and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Do that. But <laughs> at the same time, you actually cannot stop them physically. What are you going to do? Camp out at their house every day? What are you going to actually do? Like make them clock in and tell you what they're going to do? And this goes for so many different things, like friends who are struggling with porn. I mean, there's just so many things, right? When we're here trying to help and love the bride, we can tell them what we think. But what can you actually do? You cannot control someone else and make them do the right thing. People try to control outcomes. God doesn't. People on earth, they always seek to be more than they are. God knew who he was and became less. Right? What are, what are we always... Adam and Eve, they were in the garden. They had everything. There's not a single thing that they were lacking. Except one thing, they weren't God. And that is the one thing the serpent came and tempted them with. You have all of this, but really, if you eat of this tree, will you not also become like God, knowing good and evil? And how well is it going for us, knowing good and evil? How stressed are we? (laughs) Having to weigh the nuance of every right and wrong, when really, there's something that's so deep in us that longs for things to be simple, black and white. There's good and there's bad. But now we have to parse out what all that stuff is. That wasn't intended for us initially. One of the places that really brought me freedom as um, as I've kind of grown to know the Lord is actually embracing the fact that I'm nothing without him. I think a lot of us spend a lot of time in our relationships really scared that people are going to discover that we're not as great as we are. That is like one of the heart, one of the biggest core things in the spirit of rejection, right? They're going to find out that you're not as great as you are. And then they're not going to love you. With the Lord, it's kind of like, yeah, that's okay. And there's a freedom in that. I mean, the truth of the matter is we are way worse than we ever thought we were. But we're also way more valuable and loved than we ever thought we were. And so when the enemy comes and says, you are way 
more sinful, more evil. How could you be that? You're like, well, it kind of started a long time ago. (laughs) It's not new. The new part is, but I am actually also made in the image of God. And so when I think about Jesus, he doesn't try to posture. He doesn't try to become more than. He doesn't try to earn anyone's respect. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Right? You think about it. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The more I spend time with him and I look in his eyes and I get mad that people don't like him as much as I like him. Because that happens sometimes, right? You're like, why don't they see? Why do they always... I feel like the whole world has taken up what Adam does, blaming. This is why things suck. It's because of that person, that thing, God, da, 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 da. And God's like, it's okay. I love them. I'm like, but why? And he's like, I already, like when I, one of the, one of my encounters recently with him, like in my imagination, right, he's a very large lion. Um. And I look into his eyes. And I ask him, you're so big. You could just like, "Ah," and you know, they'd all like, and he's like, why don't you just do that? He's like, if I did that, they'd all be wiped out. And I don't want that. There will come a time for that. But right now, I'm just going to walk softly. And those whose ears are attuned to my footprints, they will come. We're so afraid that God's going to offend people and that they're going to fall away from Jesus. They're already fallen away. So he's not worried about offending them more. He's like walking and saying, who will come? Who knows that even though they were already fallen away, I came so that those who had ears would hear me. I will test their heart so that those who really love me will come. What's this? What's the point of this? When we go to heaven... The central figure of heaven is the Lord. 
He's not casting anyone and sending anyone to hell. If we're really honest, all of us had already fallen. What he's doing, and he's saying, I want, I want, I'm the person that all of history, I made everything. I am the best thing, the only good thing that is on this earth. And when we get to heaven, I am the one that you get to gaze upon without anything. There's no distance between us. And I want the people who are excited about that, who are waiting for that wedding day, I want those people there. I want to make a way for those people to come. So that when we actually get to be there, we will have been preparing our whole lives here on earth, learning to fall in love with him anticipating the day when we no longer see dimly. Because one day, it's not going to be hard. It's not going to be dimly lit. One day, all of this that we've been doing, trying to forgive, trying to become more like Jesus, we're going to see him. There's going to be no more darkness. And he's saying, I'm making a way for those people. Because I already know the world doesn't want me. But anyways, I'm still going to make a way. So even, so I want to just say, I think the last thing is like part of our response as we're responsible for the bride is to help people cultivate a life where they are daily cultivating the waiting for his return the cultivating, the fact that he truly is the only good thing. Falling more in love with him. It says in Ephesians 1, it says, I give thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayers, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We can all know him and love him. He is indeed knowable. And our job as Christians, as those who are ministers of reconciliation, is to help people meet God, encounter him, eagerly encourage them to pursue him. This is what it means to edify the church, to become transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I really love this quote. Um, It's, the degree to which we perceive the face of God corresponds directly with the degree of our yieldedness to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. What that means is the more we spend time with God, his person, the more we love him. It's impossible if you're really truly encountering and meeting him to not be changed and not love him more. If you run into something that makes you not feel like that, that might be because you're running into 
um, things that are pretending to be like Jesus, imposters, religion, rules. But if we're really, like when we sit down and we're, let's just use the metaphor of a date, right? Like you're sitting and the other person across the way really truly is the God of the universe, the one who created all heaven and earth, and you're, you're in his glory and in his face, it cannot help but transform you. And lastly, this is um, just to put this in the right perspective. So the word of God is we believe here that it is inerrant. That means there's no mistakes in it. That means that this was written as a signpost and a guidepost so that we can meet the Lord. Nothing he does, no, no, no miracle, nothing, is going to contradict what goes on in here. But at the same time, this absent of his presence is not the ends. Just knowing it in your head is not the ends. What heaven and what the gospel is all about is really a person. It's about the person who knows you more than anyone else knows you. And he's like, I know that I'm spirit, and so I get that it's a little hard, so I'm going to write a lot of words down because you guys tend to get confused a lot. And even with all these words, you still get confused. And even with people who tell you what the words in here say, you get confused. But I'm going to give this to you. But I am not the print Okay, like I, I remember when I was a kid and I didn't know that I'd like sleep with the book, like the Bible, and I'd be like, I don't want to put anything on top of it because it's holy, right? And and I, I mean, like I kind of like that reverence, but at the same time, it's the, it's a book <laughs> with paper made by trees, <laughs> right? Like that is, this is a conduit for us to encounter a living word, right? And so when we forsake the living word for the paper word, <laughs> we're missing something. Okay. And so I just want to put that in perspective that there is incredible reverence for where the word of God is. But at the same time, the whole point of worship up here, testimonies, everything is so that we can meet God. I know in this, in these last days, there's a lot of fear about being deceived. Okay, so everyone's like, I want to make sure that everything is quoted, and it's got to be in there just like this, and where does it say this? Okay, that's good. Okay, I, I'm, I'm totally happy with quelling people's insecurities and fears. But at the same time, I don't want us to be fear-based. Okay? Because the word is really clear that there are people in the end who have done a lot of great things. And Jesus still says, I didn't know you. That's why I, I read that scripture in Ephesians 1. It says, like, may you, may he give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And so I pray that, that we would grow in the knowledge of who he is. That we would actually meet the living God so that he becomes someone that you can talk about more real and more realistically than you can talk about 
this chair right here, or us even up here, or any of the other people where you can say, like, this is what we've talked about today. This is what he's done for me today. This is what he says about who I am. Because the only thing that matters is that. And so um, I'd love to invite up, so just the, those who are going to um, issue communion. So what communion is, is I really believe that communion is a prophetic act of declaration that we are one with God and that we believe that what he did on the cross, when he died on the cross, sacrificed his body, that we believe that he did that. That when he shed blood, that that blood is not just physical blood, but that blood actually wipes and washes us clean, makes all the things that keep it really difficult for us to come to him, makes it go away. And it is a declaration when we take that piece of communion that we are saying we are part of the body of Christ that believe this globally. And for those of you who believe that, I want to welcome you guys to come and take communion. For those of you who do not, I welcome you to come later. Find someone, one of the prayer people up here. We're going to have them up here after they do communion. So for this time, I'm going to have those who are altar ministers come and take their communion first, and they can stay here. And for those of you who do not yet know Jesus, but you would like to, I'd like you to just invite you to come and pray. And, um, and talk to someone about wherever you are in that journey. This doesn't have to be the definitive moment or whatever, but it, we don't know where that definitive moment actually happens in some ways. But we can start that first step of saying, I'm interested, I want you, Lord, and will you continue to reveal yourself to me? And so if you're interested in doing that, please feel free to do that up here.